1: Welcome back to another edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Moritz Seepern and I, Niels Kastelblasen, where we share our knowledge and sometimes painful experiences of what it's like to be a rules-based investor and where we end with some Q&A based on your questions as we want this to be a listener-driven show. Let me start, as usual, by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are you guys doing? Great. Good morning and good afternoon. Yes. How are you doing, Niels? Doing very well sitting in a hotel room in London this week. So if the sound quality is a little bit unusual, that's probably why. But before I dive into uh, my usual market rant, I want to take uh, just a couple of minutes to give uh, a few shout-outs to some of you who have taken time out uh, to leave a rating and review uh, on iTunes. And the first one I love is just this one from Nuberson, uh, who's in the US. And he writes... Give it a listen. No writers, no marketeers, nothing for sale, nothing but lifelong practitioners' discussion, markets and managing risk. It's the one uh, I can't miss podcast in my library and I'm not even a trend follower. I thought, I thought that was great uh, from someone who's not even uh, doing trend following. Um, then there's another one which I thought was really kind also um, from Amateur Trend Follower in the Netherlands. He writes... Uh, or she, could be she. Uh, These people have been in the business for so many years and have an enormous amount of wisdom to share. You won't get this from reading a book or article and they manage to find very interesting guests to join them from time to time as well. I listen to everything they produce. That's very kind. Thank you so much. Uh, And the final one uh, is from Amit uh, and uh, he has a very short one. He writes, um, The Only Podcast I Love. So I thought I just wanted to give uh, you know a quick shout-out to the three of you. Of course, there are many more reviews, and uh, we appreciate every single one of them, and you should know that we read all of them. And of course, we would uh, encourage uh, all of you who may not have yet left a rating and review in iTunes to please do so. Uh, they mean a lot to us, um, and they mean a lot to the success of the podcast. So, with that in mind, back to the markets. Let me ask you, Jerry, and more. It's just a quick question that came up this week. And the question is, would you lend your money for 98 years at 1.2%? No. What about you, Jerry? No, no not for no. 90.
2: No, <laughs> Okay. couldn't do that. Well, well, how, about, uh, how about lending it for... Uh... And getting
1: less money back. Exactly. That sounds good. And Great I think idea. you. I think you've caught onto it because someone actually just did that. I mean, at one point two percent for ninety eight years, the Austrian state just reopened a bond um, that expires about a hundred years from now, and it was well oversubscribed uh, even at this one percent rate. And um, you know. Almost, I'm all. I, I'm tempted to say, uh, but wait, there is more, like they say in these uh, infomercials, because also I picked up this week that the number of euro-denominated junk bonds trading now with a negative yield, um, you know, has gone up to 14. Something that usually was only associated with ultra-safe sovereign bonds. Now you have junk bonds trading with uh, negative yields, which. I mean, just to be clear, this means that you have companies with bad creditworthiness getting investors to lend them money and getting these investors to pay for it. I mean, incredible. And of course, these forms part, uh, or maybe they're even in addition to the now $12.8 trillion worth of bonds worldwide uh, that now has a a negative yield. So, to bring it back to um, our world, um, a week of correction, I think. For the trend followers, yields rising, uh, energy prices rising, um, so you know current long bond positions and short energy positions might have been in for a little bit of an uphill struggle this week. Um, but of course, it didn't stop the S and P from closing above three thousand for the first time ever on Friday, um, although uh, on one of the lowest volume days uh, so far this year. So, with all that in mind, Moritz, how was your week?
3: Tough, tough week. Um, lost about three percent, uh, mainly because of the bonds. The bonds, like you said, Niels, the yields started rising. Um, we all have firm long bond positions since many, many months, so that that has lost us money. Actually made a bit from the from the energies, but you know, give or take, it hasn't really moved the needle too much. Equities flat, lost a bit in the currencies, um, Bitcoin down, so not that much that was positive this past week. Uh three percent down. And and like you said, I mean, those those bonds are, and, and the yields are amazing. I think what I picked up is that Germany issued a zero-coupon bond at, you know, so that's a bond paying no coupon, no coupon, and the issue price was 102 or something like that, right? So you're paying for the privilege to give money to the state, and in return, you get back less, which, like you say, Niels, it's incredible that, that this exists, but um, the thing was oversubscribed speechless.
1: Yes, absolutely. It is uh, an interesting world we live in uh, and uh, you would think that certainly that encourages investors to look a little bit outside the usual places uh, for good investment uh, ideas Um, and perhaps maybe uh, trend following would be one of those. Um, Same sentiment on my side for this week, Um, certainly a down week, uh, probably in the same range as you um biggest losers were things like uh, Japanese bonds but you know clearly Australian bonds European bonds didn't fare too well either uh, energy was tough uh, on our side um you know general short bias in those uh, markets so that didn't help um some of the grains didn't do so well uh, either um the hawks uh, didn't do uh, well either um and currencies were um, struggling for us um, with the dollar weakening a bit. On the bright side, um, we had cotton. Uh, cotton did really well uh, for us. Um, coffee, uh, cocoa, so a bit of a, a soft um Uh, week on the upside, Uh, gold did okay, and the U.S. equities with the U.S. making new uh, highs, uh, and obviously, uh, I would imagine most trend followers being uh, on the long side of those uh, markets. Um, Yeah, that's really how our week uh, turned out. What about you, Jerry? Um, Anything exciting in your portfolio this week? Always. always
2: excitement uh, and that's exactly how I look at it as well I was really excited this week about uh, corn and gold uh, two uh, rocket ships that took off a few weeks or months ago and uh, then crashed a little and came you now they're getting almost back to their old highs so it's good to see that uh, there is this what we expect or what I need to see hopefully when we implemented a long-term strategy that uh, these vicious sell-offs don't last they don't always uh go down like they, they can come back and the trend can resume so that was nice to see those two markets and uh emissions i'll just try to choose some you have already talked about obviously currencies were not that great uh, i sidestepped the profits in those bonds and the losses this week so a lot of it, you know i'm really under positioned in the negative yield area which I think is a sort of a mistake, but uh, that's the way it went for me. And uh, I did have a couple of tweets on three tweets I wanted to mention about this, these negative yields. One was, uh, as you mentioned, negative yields on European junk. Now I've seen everything. Uh, That was, I quoted someone from a Bloomberg article. And uh, another one was, I thought I'd never see the day, but Greek 10 year yields are about to drop below US 10 year yields. So on both of those, my comment, I retweeted and commented bubble. So I'm really proud of that bubble, and hopefully, uh, well, not for you guys, but I hope it keeps going forever. But if it does turn around, I'll probably use this as one of my pin tweets that I kind of called this bubble. But it's also wishful thinking since I sort of missed the trend as well on most of these uh, European bonds. But uh, and then someone tweeted uh, the definitions of a bubble which i wasn't that interested in but my comment was uh probably helps uh, for a bubble that no one's really talking about it so i do think people talk about negative yields and they talk about the stock market but i don't think anyone sees this negative yield thing as quite like a bubble which i'm pretty sure that it is and it'll be in hindsight i'm predicting that uh it'll be so obvious that uh there was no way this was sustainable
1: I think the challenge with this is that it's just dragging on for a very long time. I mean, we've had negative yields now in some countries for for quite a while, and um, and with the uh, sort of lack of uh, of enthusiasm in in the uh, in many of the underlying economies, um, and 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 this maybe change of mindset I feel from authorities where you're not allowed to have a recession anymore, so they'll do anything to. To avoid that, um, you know, m- maybe we're all getting a little bit tired of it even though I don't disagree with, with, with what you said. I mean, it, it feels like a bubble. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it's hard to change these mega trends um, and uh, as, as people have said for many, many years, uh, you know, you shouldn't fight the Fed um, or the ECB or the BOJ for that matter. You're in bubble land, Moritz, Germany. Negative yields. Yeah, firmly in bubble land. Um, what are the Germans doing with their money? They're not putting. I in don't the know. They're buying money. real
3: estate. I think um, at least you know property prices are on the rise here since the past ten years. So you know, everybody's saying that you know there's no inflation, and maybe headline inflation is low or zero, right? But certainly there is a huge asset price inflation. So we don't have consumer inflation in the sense that, you know, the yogurt in the supermarket becomes more expensive, but financial assets certainly become more expensive stock market, the bonds, especially property. And, um, and so it is it, kind of like creating that, or people say that's creating the massive inequalities that we have in our society, uh, probably not only in Germany, but throughout Europe. Um, maybe the same can be said for the U S um, And, um, and so it is, it is distorted and this central bank policy of negative yields is, is something it's, it's hard to understand, you know, how, how that can be sustainable for the long run. And, um, so, but you know, as, as all three of us know, we'll just hang in there and trade the trends and, and right now it's the time to own bonds, whether you like it or not. It's, that's not the question. It's just time to own the bonds.
1: Yeah, I guess and also I guess with the new ECB head Christine Lagarde coming in in a few months. I mean, she has been quoted as I think I mentioned last week for saying something along the lines that negative yields is good for the global economy. So, so. Yeah, it's a strange should...
3: quote, I know. Um so maybe there's maybe that trend is 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 isn't going to stop anytime soon, right? With her taking uh, taking the the controls at the ECB. Um Maybe those bonds will go even higher. Who knows? we'll we'll just follow the trend. But um, you know one thing, probably with all that inequality decision, if if ever there were, again, or well, not if, but you know, at, at a certain point in time there will be a bear market. We just don't know when that's going to be, right? But probably that's going to close the inequality gap quite a bit if if we had a fifty percent drawdown in the stocks because uh, people owning stocks, that's normally the people that have money. Um, so that that will close some of that gap and um well we'll see
1: how it pans out absolutely jerry uh, what else happened in uh what got some love and attention in in the social media space uh this week
2: lots of stuff i was interested in but uh probably not uh pretty not too many other people were that interested but i'm undaunted and I, if i like it i'm gonna talk about it today but a lot of onesies and twosies on the like side but who cares right uh Some of this stuff was, I thought, pretty darn interesting. Uh, Selfishly, I'll start with something I think the three of us uh, are interested, like to hear. Yeah, this is a story that I love to hear. And uh, it, it, uh, you know, whenever you read about, I don't know if you guys see these type of articles that uh, Americans or whoever are, it's two, two separate countries, and we only read what we want to read. It reinforces everything we believe. I mean, I'm the king of that. I only read what reinforces what I believe. So here goes, Uh, this is an article from the Financial Times that talks about the reemergence of small managers, small investment managers are going to take over now. Uh, And uh, a lot of uh, tweets here, but I'll try to keep it uh, short. Uh, The quote is, the moment you step away from indexing, the advantages of scale disappear. We're beginning to understand that asset gathering too often viewed as the yardstick for for success is at best only coincidental to good performance. Uh, so the article continues to go on that uh, this age of asset gatherers has peaked. Uh, we're entering the age of the boutique, where it began, and uh, size will matter less than uh, insight. Music to our ears, right? Although done is pretty large, uh, but I think the uh, I think it just um reinforced my uh, my understanding that uh stick with your little small niche here what you do well and focus and uh they'll come and get you and find you and that has absolutely happened to me before large institutions have over the years came and found me and said i want to invest with you it's my job and it's in my best interest to go ahead and find managers and i'm uh, putting together a portfolio now of ctas or hedge funds and uh so hopefully this, yeah, hopefully this is uh, it's going to happen.
1: What do you come across? I mean, uh, you're obviously working for a uh, mega shop, Moritz. I mean, do you come across, uh, this is certainly a point that I come across quite a lot in my uh, day-to-day work, uh, the competition within the trend space. Um, I see a lot of uh, these things uh, happening.
3: Um, yeah, so we... We we have internalized the strategy. Essentially, um, I think it's a good sign that there is more boutiques around. I like that fact. Um, obviously, there are all those super large players um, as asset, asset gatherers and so forth. I'm not that interested in those. Um, from you know the market observations that I make and the funds that I look at um, over the last, I must really say, one and a half to two years, I found what I think are some. Really, really interesting jewels um, in the say, f- you yeah, know, 100 to 300, 400 uh, million AUM space are uh, producing spectacular returns. Obviously, with capacity constrained strategies, right? So it's always a give or take um, between your investment needs and the return percent potential that, you know, the investment will offer. Um, the firm that I work for has an immensely large balance sheet any investment, you know, within say the 100 or 200 million uh, range isn't really going to move the needle all that much, right? So here the, the questions, they become different. It's more you have to deploy more capital and maybe maybe those smaller boutique managers aren't that effective within your portfolio and you need to focus on other things. But if you do not have this massive, super large balance sheet, if you're, you know, a smaller organization, uh, an individual—I don't know. Then, you know, what, what I can say, looking at those those funds out there, definitely it pays to um, to look to look around and not only look at the well-known brand names, because there really are some great managers out there. They're still open for investment. Uh, most of the, the guys I look at, they're 100% systematic or rules-based um, in the commodity space, or you know, cross-assets trend or mean reversion, short-term type of trading strategies, vol-based, all of that stuff. Very, very nice. So I, I do like it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 yeah, it could be interesting. And maybe there is some, um, you know, maybe there is a little bit of a resurgence of the um, sort of second tier in terms of size uh, managers uh, compared to the really big asset gatherers. Um, who knows? Who knows? Um, I thought that was a great start um, to the to the tweet session. Jerry, what else have you got lined up for us?
2: Well, I got a lot of uh, good uh, creative uh, stuff this week from George and Woody. And uh, one of the things I think George introduced me to is this, this quote, uh, people like to take profits and don't like to take losses. They also hate to repurchase something at a price higher than they sold it. Humans like and dislike, human, human likes and dislikes will wreck any investment program. Now, that's like one of my favorite sentences because I'm always kind of bringing up this idea that don't go too far. Uh, a lot of people like to say, you know, find something that works for you. There's lots of things that work. I kind of doubt that and then go ahead and find something that suits you. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, to some degree, okay, but uh, you know, one of the things is trading may not suit you. So if, it's, if you don't like buying the highs, if you don't like getting back in and taking small losses and uh, having most of your profits just determined by a very low percentage number of your trades and all the uh, characteristics of trend following, then maybe it's just not for you. That I totally get, uh, but I remember, Probably 1983, uh, asking my mentor, uh, what are some of the biggest mistakes we're going to make, and uh, before I even started trading, and he said, "Well, the, probably you're getting back in. You won't get back in." And I think that's the one of the sort of problems with trend following is that we have to get back in uh, when you. When you uh, get out too quickly, or your system is too short-term, let's say like uh, mine used to be, I would say that uh, that's the cost. And it's great to get out and not watch the market keep going lower, like gold, like uh, Bitcoin, like corn—these violent moves. Oh, the market's not acting like I thought it was. Another thing that I don't like. Uh, so it's it—you know—usually these trends when they start, they just keep going. No, uh, that's you no. Know, there's no such thing as usually, and you don't know what's going to happen, and so. I think, hanging on to that trade and not getting bounced out. But if you do, you got to get back in. And so that's another one of the reasons um, I trade a little longer term, is that it it seems to work better. You don't have to keep getting back in all the time.
3: One of the markets, just just adding on that, which I observed and, and actually run a quick test on this past week, um, are the emissions. And I think, Jerry, you're trading them as well. You know, they've had this about a year, year and a half ago, they've had that spectacular trend just very smooth and it wouldn't really matter whether you traded that with a long-term or a short-term system that would have just worked right but then in the past say six to nine months I think um, the trend became a bit more choppy there were some you know range bound sideways periods in there and if I had a shorter term system I would have gotten kicked out of that position at least three times and it's only because I have that longer term approach that kept me in that position of course you know it didn't make me a lot of uh, you know, essentially only created volatility in the past six to nine months. But now, here you go. It's moved from 25 to 28, uh, making new highs now. And it just feels
2: great to still have that thing on. That's right. Uh, that's, <clears throat> I've looked at some of the charts yesterday. I think uh, one of my longer-term systems, not incredibly long-term, um, but it is, you know, right, I think, in the right space, right spot uh it I think by some dec- uh I could look at that chart, I printed out a multi-year chart and I think it's been long boons since oh nine. And uh that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's other trades out there too, Tur- Turkish uh the Turkey currency, uh back in the day, Euro Yen, I think had five, ten years of a trend. Uh and so but there was a year period in there in the boons. Uh past few years where it just didn't move. So, you know, it's kind of a bummer. You're sitting there, you're waiting, you're wondering, do I need this exit strategy that uh, exits after a certain number of days and hasn't made a new high? I don't know. So you sit there and you roll it. I mean, I guess there's some cost to holding it. There's some minimal cost to rolling it and it's not moving, but uh, then it makes new highs and then it keeps going. And then you another thing that's really good too is that uh, And this sort of, you know, the back test picks all of this up and says, another reason to trade long term uh, is that when you first get these new breakouts, whether they're this year or a year ago or nine years ago, uh, the ATR, the volatility is really low. And so you you throw in this massive position and then if you have to get out and get back in, the chances are the fall will be higher. So you have to get back in with a smaller position. So many different reasons to. Uh, you know, prefer something longer term, and then of course the downside is when they start to crash, and uh, your trailing stop is a long ways away. You can't get back all that profit. Now, what are you going to do? You want to be long term, then you want to be shorter
1: term. I mean, I think you bring something uh, very important up in this discussion, um, uh, you know, both of you in a sense, and that is I sometimes refer to one of the secrets to the success of trend following is is diversification, but I think another secret to success when when doing trend following is being able to just sit on your hands and do nothing. Uh, Like you said, I mean, being in a trend for all these years, I mean, if if you know most people who don't have uh, or who chooses not to follow rules uh, with a hundred percent discipline, they will be tempted along that uh, ride to, um, you know, to trade, um, and um, you know that, that that in itself, you know, could be a great weakness of 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 an investment strategy that you simply to trigger happy, um, you know, getting in and out uh, too often without making you know real real progress uh, so yeah very important
2: yeah i looked at that chart you know and i was like well what would i have wanted to do different you know okay avoid that year period where the boons just chopped around uh, but other than that i mean and i think uh you guys talked last week and maybe we'll get into uh, some of the things you talked about after i couldn't continue as it relates to uh, the questions that i think uh sam had uh, for, oh, yeah, sure. Um, but I think that you know being long term is uh, there's many different reasons you want to do that, you know, primarily because it kind of works, and uh, the markets are more choppy these days.
1: Yeah, definitely. But before we get to Q and a, um, anything else you want to bring up from from this week's uh, tweets that you got engaged in? Well, feel free to exercise your
2: authority as the leader, so uh, I could keep going. uh, But, uh, you know, Wayne is just uh, one of my favorite uh, guys, Twitter Twitter guys. He's so smart. He's so interesting. And uh, he lets me kind of like take his tweets and comment on them kind of in kind of a, I don't know, not a rude way, but kind of like making not making fun, but kind of uh, walking the line of. Wayne is uh, kind of, you know, he's quiet, but he's not trend. So I want to bring him back to our side more on on the trend stuff. And uh, (laughs) he always likes it and he doesn't criticize me and he doesn't criticize anyone. So I take the liberties to uh, comment on some of the things he says. Uh, So one of them was uh, brain fitting is more dangerous than curve fitting. That is talking, talking ourselves into why the findings make sense, mistaking, justifying for reasoning. Than acting with false confidence, uh, that's weighing. So my comment was, I have no data, I have no ideas, I have nothing that makes sense, no justifying, no reasoning, and no confidence, true or false, outside of my trend following systems. That is. So, I think we need to bring our friends over to our side and continue to let them remind them that uh, a lot of the things that they have to deal with, uh,
1: we don't deal with. Due to just following the price, yeah, no, absolutely. I did see that tweet and uh, and um, and it, yeah, it's great and it's a great that uh, Wayne allow us to uh, to comment like that uh, as well. So uh, without uh, without taking any offense of our, our attempts to uh, to bring him to the to the right side of of trading. Um, Anything you picked up, uh, Morts, this week? Anything in particular? Yes, so, yeah. Yes, oh.
3: there's there's one, and you know Wayne is producing all these gems. There's one gem a day uh, coming from him. So uh, here's you know double quoting him, but um, this one I really liked. It's uh, when mistakes happen, it's like buying at the money op- at the money options on yourself. Over time, if you learn from it, you go further in the money, and if you don't, further out to increase your chances of being deep in the money before expiration of increasing your value, learn from your mistakes. And, you know, of course we all know that we've said it before, it's important to learn from mistakes. You know, it's important to make them. I think, you know, they cannot be avoided. It's part of, part of the thing, part of the journey, part of, part of trading is making mistakes, but then learning from them and not just tossing them to the trash can, and forgetting about them is extremely important. And, you know, you can say it in a million different ways, but Wayne always has that fantastic skill of, um, you know, saying it in in a, in a quantity type of language, this time using options. So I really enjoy that. He's
1: one of the favorite guys on Twitter. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure many of our listeners uh, are now familiar with Wayne's Twitter handle. What else jerry on your side before we jump into some of the uh, week's questions well of course i'd like i always like to have a
2: tweet about the sample size and uh, how important that is uh this comes from a bloomberg article if it's less than 30 years i wouldn't look at it for factors identifying a factor is like detecting the direction of a gentle breeze in the middle of a hurricane you need a lot of observations to tell so i obviously i'd love that idea that uh, predicting and uh, anything other than a really long back test uh, with a systematic approach that produces lots of trades legitimate sample size is very important Uh, there was another tweet uh, i haven't found it yet but it was something along the lines of uh, the some fundamental uh or value metric that has predicted the last eight recessions every single time it's eight eight for eight the inversion of the three and ten or something like that could have been something like that yeah and uh then i just i just retweeted uh you know a sample size of eight and i think that this predicting and this uh looking at things like this just uh you know once you start going down that road it's really hard to Get away from it. I mean, I we know people who can't get on the stock rally. They've been out of the market for many years. So and yet they kind of maybe respect trend Uh, They understand trend. They like it, but it's these valuations. And how do I get myself out of this bind? Uh, And as soon as I give up, as soon as I say, yes, it's the trend, you know, that's when it's going to go down. They know this. (laughs) That's why they continue to hesitate and proselytize about value, which, you know, doesn't work. Uh, There was another quote I just saw that was something like, uh, to say that these value metrics and uh, these ways of valuing the market and timing the market are not working, the fact is that they've never worked. And I think, whoa, that's really, really good. Uh, You know, if you're not gonna embrace trend following wholeheartedly, at least embrace the fact that uh, you can't predict, and that's what this is. It's just predicting.
1: You know, sample size. You bring up something interesting. I um, uh, one of the newest videos on Real Vision um, is with a very interesting uh, gentleman called Milton Berg. I don't know if any of you saw that one. It just came out, and Milton Berg is um, uh, focuses on turning points um, and uh, has worked with some of the absolute best. Uh, traders in the world, uh, George Soros, uh, for one, Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, just to name a few. Uh, so clearly, he has um, you know a lot of credentials, a lot of success. And he was talking about how they calculate uh, calculate all sorts of, I mean, thousands of different indicators. Um, but but interestingly enough, he he also said. Even though we don't have much of a sample size with some of these indicators, we might still—and he almost reversed it back—to uh, say, "Well, even if it's only happened twice, um, you know, doesn't mean it's not a great indicator." And so it, it was quite of interesting. I mean, it was a little hard to follow, I would say, um, because on one hand he's—you know—he's saying, "Well, you know, it—you it, know—it still might work, so why not follow it?" Um, and I'm sure he uses he he wants many confirmations before uh, putting on a trade, um, but um, but it was slightly different sort of thought process that that the three of us would go through where we say well actually we need a a meaningful number of observations before we can kind of rely on it. But it was an it's worth worth listening to. Um, I I thought um, I met
2: Milton years ago. He's just, oh, he's a smart cool. guy. Uh, yeah I mean I don't discourage that type of thinking I mean we don't want everyone you know it still needs to be a small group who put themselves through the misery that trend following can inflict so uh, I don't discourage that I think that's just normal human behavior and I think it's very difficult for incredibly uh, smart people especially coming from other fields with their PhDs to you know plop down in a chair and say oh okay Breakouts. Wonderful. I'm done. That's great. You can make a lot of money in breakouts. You know, it's just inevitable. They I, I can't uh, Can't stop themselves.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then uh, one of our friends, uh, Antonio, he, uh, he He gave me, I think he was giving me the impression that uh, another idea that people gravitate towards is recent data is more important. So that's another thing that probably runs afoul of how we do things, and I do think that that's possible. That recent data might be more relevant, I guess. But uh, I don't think as a trend follower who understands all the ideas of trend following and the back testing and the sample size can allow themselves to think that way.
1: I agree with the uh, signal generation um, that that that's probably not how we would we we wouldn't put more or less weight on 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 any part of the of the data. Uh, although I do think that maybe in our risk management, we, you know, we could, um, you know, we could put more weight on, say, recent volatility compared to volatility five years ago. Sure. Things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean maybe there's some more tweets we want to talk about. Uh but I definitely wanna go back to a question that came up last week after we lost uh you, Jerry, and but it was really a question for you. It was from Sam. Um so thanks very much again, Sam, for for your um, support, participation, Um, and Sam writes, In the past, Jerry has said, soon after the Turtle program ended, he realized he needed to take his time frame from 20 to 40 days and lengthen it by 5 to 10x. What evidence or experience would lead to this realization? Obviously, becoming unprofitable might be one, but we tend to look at other metrics. Would it be an increase in trade volume relative to the past, shorter trade duration, lower win percentage, noise slash volatility increase, etc.? The realization is very profound and critical, so understanding a bit more of the underlying factors would be helpful. While I use Jerry as an example, I think you can all contribute on this. I think Moritz and I talked about this, but we certainly didn't hear your your views on, on Sam's question, uh, Jerry. So, um you need to go back a few years and see if you can remember.
2: It's a couple of different ideas, you know. Obviously, uh, the back testing, uh, then the just living through the markets. You know that usually is going to prompt you to uh, for some research ideas, some back testing ideas, and ways to handle the recent, uh, you know, failures of the system. I would say, you know, that uh, you gave back too much profit, or you gave you got in and out too much, I got chopped around, whipsawed around. So, uh, obviously, that was prompting me. And then I just uh, all of a sudden started looking at weekly charts. I don't trade off of weekly charts, and I don't choose my systems based upon looking at charts. But I do come up with ideas based on charts, and these weekly charts were very eye-opening because with a weekly chart, and you can cram in, you know, 10 or 20 years worth of data on your computer screen, you can see these massive trends pop out the boon you know nine years or many years couple three years and so my whole time frame what i thought was appropriate started to change when i saw wow you know there's a lot of in and out here i've been doing but this market has been in a trend for a long time if you look at it on a weekly basis and then when we started doing the back testing to move towards that uh longer time frames we found that uh the shorter time frames were deteriorating, but that the longer time frames were always better. I've said this many times, and no one's called me out on it. So you know, do some work. Someone call me out on it, but that's my recollection. Is that my got, my research people said, now yeah, these parameters that work good now, and the other ones that we've been using are getting worse every year, but these have always been just as good or better. Wow, you know, it's not like we said, yes, the markets are getting choppy. and the systems we're trading now are too short term, now we've got to be longer term. Not only was that a good solution, uh, the drawdowns were larger, the shock ratio was worse, et cetera, but we're back to making money. Uh, But it's always been a good to trade in the relatively longer term 50-day moving average crossing the 200-day moving average timeframe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't have any data from the 70s and the 80s on this particular question, but I do have data from 90 uh, 90 and onwards, so 28 years, and uh, certainly using a trend-following methodology uh, very similar to what we do uh, in, in, in our live trading. Um, we first of all we see quite a lot of difference really from year to year. We um, and I've mentioned this before. I mean we, you can have a year where forty days look back is is the optimal, and the next year it's two hundred and forty days. I mean that's not uncommon. But there is a bit more of a cluster in the longer term time frames, and I'm I'm talking about the absolute best time frame so it doesn't, so if, if 40 days is a is a good time frame, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't have made money in 140 days or 240 days, it just means that 40 days was the absolute optimal um, that year, but uh, but no, it it, it rarely clusters uh, in the shorter-term time frame. And we actually do this on an ongoing basis. I mean, we allow the model to recalibrate itself um, and we don't restrict it necessarily on the shorter-term time frames, but it just never selects anything in that time frame. Uh, so I, I concur with what you say, Jerry. I think that's what the data still supports in terms of uh, how trend following should be done at least on a diversified portfolio I don't know if if you were trading just one sector what it would look like probably different but on a fully diversified portfolio I think that's true have you done any work on this Moritz or sure I mean like we said last um
3: last week um looked at all those time frames and then discovered that the trade statistics for the shorter term time frames are inferior to the longer terms so um So that was a relatively easy decision to make. And especially because, like you said, Niels, there is a cluster of, say, effectiveness around the longer-term timeframes. So, um, you know, you tend to trade around there, or at least I tend to trade around there. But um, I've also mentioned that I have not fully turned the other things off. You know, I do like the diversification that I get from uh, trading different speeds, trading different markets, long and short, all the time. Also, you know, people may want to consider combining, you know, daily bars and weekly bars, all of that can add diversification to your portfolio. So having a mix of things in there is important. And then just, you know, following through with it, but it's tilted to the longer term side of things now.
2: I think uh, when you look at these longer term systems and you try to create uh, multiple entries, multiple exits, different parameters, that's what I try to try to do. Even though I'm in the medium to really long term, I have different you know, three or four different entries, four or five different exits, uh, they, when you get a trend going at, the, they're going to be, you know, 90% correlated, uh, and then when the trend reverses, if it's a material trend, uh, you know, if it's one of those big ones that we're waiting for, then uh, there could be a quite a bit of difference between uh, the systems and how much money, what's the PL of those particular trades. So, one could be 100 ATRs, one could be 50 ATRs, <clears throat> although it's been 90 some percent correlated for the past year because you know you got in about the same time and uh, and it just held on to the position. So, it's kind of a weird uh, one of the weird characteristics of uh, trend volume. You're like, why should I even bother? All of these systems are so correlated, yes, but when the PL gets realized, it could be uh, vastly different. You know, you get out at the your shorter-term system, the longer-term stays in, and it keeps going up, and you have to get back in on the shorter. I mean, every combination can happen, and uh, so it's really worth uh, sticking with the long-term but trading uh, multiple entries and exits.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, Sam has another question that he sent in a little later, uh, and of course, he's uh, bringing up a, um, a frequent uh, topic uh, that we... Uh, love to talk about, Sam. I know you You know this. So Sam is going. I was going back through previous episodes and in March volatility targeting was brought up frequently. Sorry for bringing it up again. On multiple occasions, Moritz and Jared talk about the effects of vault targeting and even just adjusting the ongoing position based on volatility changes the following way. It leads to smaller profits, larger Uh, trading larger and larger average losses. Can you expand on this practice? Uh, Why is this true? What exactly is going on for this to be the case? Is it because the position is smaller than it would otherwise be for the huge winners along with adding to positions that ultimately become losers more frequently than winners? I can conceptualize the smaller profits fairly easily, but the larger average losses is escaping me still. Right, guys, so um, does this ring a bell from our conversations back in March?
2: It rings a lot of bells and from many, many conversations. I'm obsessed with this topic, so, yes. But go ahead, Moritz. I want to hear what you have to say first.
3: Hmm. The volatility, the ongoing vol control system, to me, is an overlay to a trading system. It does not have to do anything with the original premise of Finding and trading trends. So that's let's just you know recl- recount that 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 is a fact, right? Now, what you want to achieve with a vol control system or that overlay is a relatively constant realized volatility of your PL stream. Whether or not that's desirable, different question, but that is the target, right? You decide on a certain level of target volatility, say that's 12%, and then Positions are sized on an ongoing basis to match that 12% level. Now, it depends on the markets in your portfolio. Equities behave in a different different way than, than the bonds NFX. But as a general rule, if volatility gets lower and lower and lower, then regardless of the asset you trade, your position size will get larger and larger and larger, regardless of the trend, right? So you do have let's let's break this down into a couple of things. There is a risk and a chance, but there is also risk that you're sizing up on positions, you're increasing risk because you're trading larger and and then the trend stops, right? Or there's a gap in the market and you're extremely exposed exposed much larger than originally you would have been, right? So there's a risk there. Of course, if the trend just continues smoothly and smoothly, you'll enjoy the larger position size, but As we know, every trend at a certain point in time will come to an end, and you will have a larger position if and when that happens. Now, the opposite is true if volatility is getting higher. If volatility is getting higher, then you will reduce your position size. This may feel good initially because you're trading smaller and the market is volatile. But what does that volatility in that market really mean? a volatile period in a market does not necessarily mean that that market is going down. Uh, Emissions. Emissions. Very good example. We've just had a period of higher volatility in the emissions market for the past six months. And it's been much less volatile prior to that. Now you will now have a smaller position size in the emissions market, um, because volatility has just been a bit higher. The trend has kind of like, you know, taken a little bit of a break there, but now it's back in play. It's making new highs. So this is, this is the type of scenario which really I don't want to have inside of my trend-following trading system. Um, certain markets do go, or they all go, I think, through more volatile periods, even, as, even if the trend continues. Sometimes you will see that the trend is becoming really choppy and volatile um, at the end, as it's making new highs, and still it's then going higher, right? And it's exactly those periods where, you know, I don't want to be playing around with that position size. And this is my main point of critique around that system, around that Vol control overlay, that it's not really an integral part of a trend following trading system. And I don't see why it should belong there. In fact, I have when you know we we all look at trade statistics. I know Jerry does it in the same way that I do it. And when I have the, the vault control features switched on, I don't even know how to count those trades. The, the way I look at it is, you know, I count my entries, I count my exits, I count the winners, I count the losers, I calculate the average win, the average loss, etc., 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 right? But those vault control trades, they they kind of like they're, 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 they're doing something strange to the portfolio. I don't know where to put them. And, and what I can say is that the risk that you are... Um, with those wall control trades trying to reduce that risk does not disappear that risk goes somewhere and in my experience and also looking at the statistics it does show up in a larger average loss so this is my observation of the thing I do get larger average losses with a trend following trading system if it is wall controlled I don't know where to put the trades I don't have the desire to trade at a constant level of vol of vol. I don't mind if it's you know overshooting two or three percent to the upside or to the downside you know every once in a while. Over the long run, it's you know realizing a certain level of vol that I want it to realize. So I don't have to be laser pointed there. And yeah, so apologies for that being very very long stretched, but um, I hope it's been. I hope I've touched on on the most important points here.
2: Yeah, A+, plus. That was <clears throat> that was uh, everything. I uh, I have a little bit of uh, something to add, but all of that was perfect. Uh, you know, there's nothing more important that you could see. you started and you ended with, and it's not a system trade. I mean, it's just that simple. They're not system trades. It's a portfolio overlay that can overwhelm your entry exit uh, large sample size backtest. Um, I don't know how you get around that. I've mentioned this for many, many years. I'm just waiting for someone to tell me and show me. And uh, But I understand, I think, what's happening here. And I'm a little, uh, yes, maybe they do want this uh, constant, uh, more constant volatility. And it's easier for them and for the clients, especially clients love this stuff. You just, a smart person can tell them they can do this and they're all over it. But I think that it's uh, probably more a, a choice of what are we going to do now that we have to trade so long term, we have to have a strategy that doesn't give back all of the profits. So we're great. You know, We're great with the, the boon for nine years or 10 years, but uh, now it's, it's really started to make a lot of money. It's started to get a little uh, vertical going up here, and if it starts to crash, we're going to give back a year or two's worth of profit. So what are we going to do? This is the Achilles heel and more than just the heel of uh, long-term trend following. So this uh, ball targeting fits perfectly. It fits right in there. We'll be selling we're, 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 we're calling it risk management and risk and money management and risk control. but it's really helping us because uh, we'll sell some we'll sell some boons at the highs. And most of the time when you get into these big trends you're making lots of money. The Volatility is going way up, and so uh, we're taking money off the table uh, at the highest. And this is just going to make the Sharpe ratio look so much better. Uh, and you know, I'm not against um, having a mega profit in the fall. I had this, I, I tell these same stories all the time, but I had this uh, dollar index trade uh, five years ago, whatever, and it, uh, the volatility had increased 10 times from when I bought it. You know, that's fine. I mean. You've got this mega profit. You've been in it for a long time. You've made a, a ton of money. The volatility is crazy. You can't even sleep. Yeah, take half off. Take a third off. Just It's just random. Uh, you could keep going and do that in that, do that in emissions as well. I mean, who cares? It's not going like, to kill you. Uh, you'll probably get out even lower if you wait for the train exit. <clears throat> but don't call it math. Don't call it part of the system. It's It's the opposite of that. Uh, so I think this is, uh, but uh, to to answer the question you know about the smaller winners is that uh, you know when when uh, Moritz and I when we uh, when we we're gonna make more money because we, uh, on this uh, emissions trade because we never got out of any. so our average win, our average profit is going to be higher. and of course, our drawdown is going be much higher as well. so it's it's kind of like, okay, uh, you know, they're all saying like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that the average winner is smaller because I'm trading smaller. And if I'm trading smaller to make the same return, I've got to trade larger and I have to risk a little bit more. So if Jerry's risking 50 basis points, maybe I have to risk 60 or 70 in order to make the same amount of money, which is fine because taking my system and overlaying it with portfolio uh, risk control and fall targeting this is what we do. It makes it a more efficient system. So the math says you can leverage it up. Now we're back to, it's not a system trade. There's no sample size around it. And it, you you are leveraging it up, but it's a wobbly system. It's, it's wobbly ideas. And so that is probably not as safe as just um, transferring, keeping that risk in
1: open trade profit versus transferring it to Larger losses so I have to be a little bit careful here I think because um, I'm the odd one out here <laughs> like the little sheep coming into the lions den, I think but um, we take a different approach we um, but, but but it's not but I'm I, but I don't disagree uh, on some of the key points so for many many years pretty much from 1974, all the way to 2013, we were using a fixed risk budget. So not volatility targeting, volatility could change, but we were using a fixed budget for valued risk. And uh, that means, of course, that sometimes you uh, go through some highly volatile periods because you're not really, uh, you know, you're dialing to the same risk level every single day. And, um, but on the other hand, we 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 knew uh, internally that there are times when there are better environments for trend following, um, and there are times where there is you know a bad environment for trend following. So to us, it didn't make sense to always have this. You know, why would you run at full speed all the time um, when you have these different environments? So we came up with something um, that we call the adaptive risk profile. Now this is not vault targeting. We don't, you know, we don't run, we we don't target the same volatility um, day in day out. In fact, we don't target volatility at all. But we now change our risk budget, and it can be adjusted essentially on a daily basis depending on the environment. So it's, so it's not, I think, what, what Jerry and Moritz is, is against, um, but it's a different way to managing uh, the risk. Uh, first, I'll, I'll, I'll share the, the outcome of, of, of doing it this way. So according to our um, data, both live and what we were expecting from our research, we've been able to reduce the volatility of the product, of the strategy, by 25%. Without giving up any of the upside, so for us that's a very important improvement um, because one of the hardest, uh, one of the things that doesn't allow investors to really benefit from trend following is that they can't stick with it if it's too volatile uh, or the drawdowns gets too big. So for us to be able to deliver the same returns but uh, with a higher risk adjusted profile is something that we wanted to do. Uh, so that that's that, that's kind of the first part. Um, the second part is, I understand completely what Moritz is saying. Is I don't know what to do with the trades, right? Um, and, and this is by no means a criticism to how uh, you know Morris and or Jerry is is how they do the trend following, but but I don't necessarily think you need to look at these things as a, on a trade by trade basis. Um, we used to do that, but with these new things that we do now, we've taken a much more statistical approach to the whole portfolio. Uh, portfolio construction, managing of the risk of the portfolio, um, is, is an integral part of what we do. It's not just about entries and exits. It's the risk management, which we talk about as being important. Well, if it's that important, it should be part of what you what you consider your your overall system, in my opinion. Um, so I know this may be different uh, in terms of you, and there's no wrong or right. Uh, clearly, we all have long track records that suggest that these approaches work. But we've certainly found it uh, useful in our uh, case to um, you know, to look at these things slightly differently. Than maybe um, the way we did it uh, earlier from a from a trend following um, perspective. So I'm going, I think I'm going to leave it there without getting into too many uh, too much trouble. I think that's great. That's a very good, uh, and I think most
2: of the peop- most people, most traders, agree with you. So I would just make one uh, comment, and that is that uh, I prefer, which it doesn't mean a lot, but I prefer to think that uh, there is a more than one way. <clears throat> there is one right way and i prefer to think that you you could have the right way rather than uh, my brain cannot handle that oh it doesn't matter how it well it may in the long run kind of like not matter i I don't i've said many times after going through these rants about this uh that uh, i don't see any evidence in anybody's performance my performance is not any better and uh and certainly the larger ctas that do fall target and so they're they're large. And so, uh, they don't have to, uh, defend themselves. Their AUM it is all that, you know, the majority has spoken and uh, people favor this type of trading, but, uh, I don't know who is right or wrong, but there is one way, better way of doing it. And uh, you absolutely could be right. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and I do think that especially coming from my background, uh, another thing that really stood out is this, uh, I forgot how you worded it, but it was like, uh, you don't have to do the transaction by transaction, the buy and the sell. That, And that's the cornerstone and the foundation of everything I believe in. So way too old to switch.
1: Yeah, no, two comments on that, Jerry. First of all, I don't consider what we do as vault targeting. So the way you talk about vault targeting is people who always try and keep the portfolio at a certain level of volatility. And we we, we disagree with that. Like you, we think that's completely not to do that, um, and so we're not trying to do that. I mean, our vol, you know, will change, um, you know, for for sure. Uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to integrate uh, our overall risk budget, um, you know, a little bit more uh, than maybe just looking at it. Okay, I'm gonna take 25 basis point risk on every single trade I get. So we're trying to say, well, let's just look at how much or overall risk do we have? Um, you know, based on all these entries and exits we're getting, and uh, and sometimes if the environment uh is is not conducive to trend following, we we want to pare back on that, and and when we see opportunities, um, you know, not just from the signals but also from maybe correlations, etc cetera, et cetera, we we might want to take a little bit more uh risk on that. Um, but to your final point, you know. It, it, you know, I think that I, I mean I fully understand, and, and and I kind of come from that school as well, that that you really look at entries and exits and you analyze all your single trades and the trade stats are very important. And I don't disagree with that at all. I think this is really the crux of the matter uh, for for how trend following uh, has, you know where where we come from. Uh, I think on I think from our point of view, we're just trying to maybe also say, well, on, on top of all of this, you, you can't ignore the overall risk you're running from all of these signals. Um, so you need to somehow, and I'm not saying we're doing it the right way or the best way, um, but, but somehow you need to take that into account as well. Um, you And not treat every single instance as an isolated instance. Maybe that's what we're trying to do.
2: Yeah, I agree with all of that. And- the way that i handle that would be to uh you know the massive amount of diversification i can get as much i need a lot right, of sure. diversification. Yeah. yeah i need to uh set my max risk uh on day one i'm setting my max risk and i'm done that's my max risk and i have to live with that yeah and yeah. sometimes uh, because my max risk is based upon the risk when i put the trade on uh the ATR now as we've been talking that ATR has changed a lot it's gotten a lot larger so why are you still paying attention to your original risk your original max risk when the volatility now is so much higher once again I'm not if it gets out of control yeah cut back a little uh and that's the way I would handle it just intellectually I would say I'm going to cut back a little here I'm not going to waste my time with a back test Hey, so right. right now it's too volatile for me, for my clients. Uh, I'm guessing a little bit. And I just think to me, putting in all of these rules uh, would just be me you know, kidding myself. You know, you can, I, I'm not against rules. It's just the back test. The, the future is not going to look like the past necessarily. Moritz, rescue us. All right, there. <laughs> I, I don't think there's all too much to
3: add. One thing that I want to mention is. Um... Let's that's, that's bear in mind, I mean, the vault control trades, I'm, I, I may be wrong there, right? Maybe you guys tell me that it's been around in the 80s. But um, in my experience, that thing has really started in 2007, 2008, when the first large number of vault control products came out. Prior to that, maybe volatility has been controlled in a different way, but certainly investment banks have issued loads of indices and products which have a daily vault control feature. So that's a 10, 11, maybe now 12-year-old product, which I think undoubtedly creates uh, tremendous flows in the market as of the close or toward the settlement, all of that type of stuff. right? So just a word of caution there also. And this, by the way, has nothing to do with risk parity funds, which rebalance, I think, much more infrequently than daily. But the daily vol control type of thing that's going on on the S&P or on other indices and multi-asset portfolios is creating flows and, um, and it's a thing that's around for, like I say, 10 or 11 years, uh, it allows banks to, you know, produce products and price options on portfolios, which otherwise they couldn't be pricing options on. So it has facilitated a new type of product category and you know, for what it's worth it, it just, to me, you know, having my system not being, or not taking part in those flows. Uh, feels good you know those flows may trigger exits or entries uh, which maybe otherwise wouldn't have been there that's a fact that we have to live with uh, nothing I can do about it but but you know putting myself into that you know daily flow trading uh, trying to hit the same prices as all those guys out there I'm not keen um, yeah that's that's the final final point on that
1: <laughs> great stuff and um, and Sam I think you were Absolutely spot on that uh, this is a topic that we love to talk about, so uh, don't bring it up for another couple of months before we... <laughs> okay. But be, please then bring it but up again. Well, then do bring it up again. See <laughs> if we still... Uh, what you brought up if... uh, another
2: topic, which I won't mention, but we uh, do have a couple of top topics that get us going, and I, and I fully embrace uh, the differences of opinion, and I caution anyone to uh, agree with me over YouTube, uh, when we differ, because I don't even really know if I help, you know I don't know the answer to these questions. They're difficult.
1: No, and and I think just to be absolutely clear, when 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 Morris and Jerry says they're against vault targeting, so am I. It's just that we on our side we do things differently to the way Morris and, and Jerry does it. Um, but vault targeting in the, targeting in itself, just indiscriminate vault targeting. Uh, we have not found that to be uh, a good idea either. So, anyways, Cathal has a question for us. Uh, firstly, to yourself, Moritz and Jerry, many thanks for a fantastic podcast. For a retail investor to gain access to this level of knowledge delivered with such passion and calmness, it's astounding. I'm not sure about the calmness, but you know, passion for sure. Yeah. <laughs> My question today may be more relevant for Jerry. Backtesting has many nuances and pitfalls, but I find the application and interpretation uh, of the results more difficult when it comes to individual equities. After screening or filtering the equities uh, which meet your criteria, I would like to ask how you then apply backtesting. Equities which meet your criteria today may not m- have met them last year and may not. Uh, have even existed a few years ago. Even if a company dates back 10 years, its earnings growth, market cap, uh, institutional ownership, etc., or whatever screening you use may have changed significantly, meaning your backtest is capturing periods in which your selection criteria are not met. In contrast with commodities, forex, fixed income, and even long-established ETFs, individual equity characteristics change continuously, Uh, negating the validity of longer-term backtesting results. How do you account for this in validating your strategies on individual equities? Many things, if you have time to include in your next podcast. Of course, absolutely. Thank you so much, Cathal. I look forward to hearing Mr. Parker.
2: I don't know if I understood all that, but I think... uh...
1: I think it's how you select the universe of equities, and then actually be able to go back uh, in time um, and and kind of ensure that those criteria you based on your selection today are still met back in time with with individual equities. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, it's a tough, tough way to. Uh, it's a it's a big discussion, but you know we trade all the markets the same way, so I'm not against. Um, doing a back test on currencies commodities and interest rates and using those systems for the stocks as well don't even include stocks mm, interesting yeah exactly because you know when you do that and then let's say now let's include stocks uh, how our parameters changing probably not going to change very much uh, <clears throat> we have a fixed universe once we choose those stocks in currencies, commodities, and interest rates. We don't want to change our universe. We don't want to change our unit size, our risk for each market. We don't want to. I mean, maybe we will. There's stocks that go out of business, of course. Uh, I'm just giving bullet points because I'm having a hard time figuring out how to explain. Uh, But another thing, too, is, um, you know, it reminds me of the study that Eric uh, Crittenden did uh well he told me about it and he said he did a back test on all the stocks that were delisted they no longer existed and they went out of business or they were bought uh and they made about the same amount of money as this as the as the stocks that were still around so it's really hard to um now i pay attention to the trade stats as well so i don't put a lot of emphasis on uh what the equity curve looked like 20 you know over the past 20 or 30 years for a hypothetical system as much as what is my average trade my average win my average loss win percentage so um, testing all the stocks or as many stocks as you can and getting a good indication as to what parameters may work Um, we've certainly over the years we would do back testing with stocks and and the futures markets and we would realize that we have to be careful because the stocks were so profitable uh, they would start determining the parameters to if we let it you know so uh, it's, it's once again i think it's perfectly fine to just choose your parameters based upon currencies commodities and interest rates do that back test and then use those same parameters for the
1: stocks. Uh, I don't think it's going to be much different. And and isn't the other secret also that that the, that you actually the way you pick your universe of stocks it's not really rocket science. I mean, you take the big names in in a number of different sectors. You're not trying to necessarily screen for, you know, all sorts of detailed things when you look at the universe of stocks. Or, or am I wrong on that one? No,
2: I. I uh screen for the number of average the volume the average volume and uh, then once i get like i can run these screens and make my average volume would produce about 260 stocks some non u.s stocks that uh, were traded in the u.s so then i just start uh, with that with that list i start looking at the correlations so i don't think putting together a portfolio has anything to do with uh, historical performance, you know, which stocks performed well. So, CTAs are kind of, or I am kind of strange in that the rest of the world is trying to find the best stocks to own. I've said many times, I want to be short some stocks or flat stocks in a big bull market. Thus, I know I have a good portfolio, it's met my criteria, as much diversification as possible. So. I Am I getting
1: close to making sense? No, I mean I think that's right. I mean I think what what um, um, what the question suggested to me at least was that there was a lot more screening filters, market cap, these that things that that you know do change over time. But if you're screening based on say volume, I mean then obviously that maybe is a little bit more simple because what you're looking for is liquid stocks, and and therefore they you know doesn't really matter. Uh, so much with some of the other things, uh, because you you want uh, a liquid instrument, just like the the futures that you have uh, in the other sectors. Stocks have particular problems with uh, you know cocoa has been around or
2: coffee's been around a long time. and It's always been tradable, and stocks are just not that way. There's new stocks and there's stocks that are no longer tradable. It's it's more of a uh, I forgot the term, but it's 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 a it's a harder to get to get a proper. Universe and do the proper back testing yeah.
1: for yeah. sure, yeah have you ever dabbled in single stock smarts, or are you yes, sticking at it yeah
3: and um, um, there there's a couple of things to it, also the corporate actions, you know dividends, stock splits, all of that I think need to be incorporated um i I like the idea of trading single stocks. I can completely understand where you know where that makes sense, it does provide an extra source of diversification compared to the indices um. It it does come, I guess, at a small cost of liquidity, even though I'm not sure if that's really uh, measurable in, in, in the way that you know um, you can trade them now with the single stock futures um, trading on the close, all of that. So it's I've mentioned that before. It's one of the things that um, I'm looking at uh, right now as we speak, and uh, I, I I find it I find it just logical to trade them.
2: Yeah, I think it's like this, uh, you know just be on the lookout for new new stuff. I can't wait to, uh, I would get excited when natural gas became a market or when I could add the rupee or emissions or was a new market. So I'm, I'm getting excited about Beyond Meat. You know, <laughs> what's the difference? It's something new and different. It's diversification. Exactly. Uh, recently, we had sort of the opposite problem and I'll tell you how we went about it uh, is we, decided to do a project to say, okay, what, let's find 35 stocks that are different. They're not correlated, they are low correlation. And we're trading those stocks now. And I looked the other day and 40% of those, the S&P hit a new high on Friday. I'm flat and short 40% of my universe. What are you doing? You should be fully long the S&P. You're blowing it. Well, in the same way that none of us really enjoy being short all the currencies, you know, a few months ago. Or well, we're always short these commodities, no logs out there, you know. Hey, it's the same way. You know, I like to make a lot of money. I like to be long the s and uh, I like it when all the stocks go up. 2013, we had a monster year because we were long 95% of our stocks into 2013. Now we're only long 60%. But recently we had the opposite problem where we did the back test we, we chose the, this group of stocks, lots of liquidity, lots of differences. Tesla, you know, uh, canopy growth, marijuana, <clears throat> just trying to find exotic. And the numbers were coming back and choosing these stocks because they were different. And then we did the back test and this group made a lot less money. Well, you know, can't we can't trade this group. <laughs> yes, we can, because we're not supposed to look, we're not supposed to choose our universe. Uh, based upon how they did profit wise just the contribution to diversification so we did the back test we had worse results full speed ahead
1: yeah did you see the uh, article on CNPC's uh, homepage on the 29th of June it's, it's headed 80% of stock market is now on autopilot and then they go on to say that uh, 60% of the equity assets now are You know, based on quantitative funds, relying on uh, you know uh, passive uh, investment um, approach, and now you have these trend-following models instead of fundamental research now account for 20% of the market share. At least that's what they think. I mean, I think trend
2: following in in cash stocks is rampant. at one point, it was all that was there, you know, back in the day, cash equities. Um, that's where everyone got started. What else was there following these trends? And I think for, for probably a lot of people who listen to our podcast, uh, they stocks are where, where it's at for them. They have their Schwab, a Fidelity account. There's no leverage. They can't get in trouble. It's long only. It's uh, can't borrow money. Well, you can, but, you know, they... And so it's an easy way to get going and understand and watch the markets. The trends have been good. It is just uh, perfect uh, for to get, you know, to test out your ideas and to, and to get some initial trend following under your belt. Uh, and then when I think people, uh, hopefully, when they see the benefits and they experience the benefits of trading their stocks with the trend, uh, they'll see benefits of adding currencies, commodities, and interest rates. And Allocating the CTAs.
1: Absolutely. Let me quickly, so those were the questions by the way. Um, so thanks so much and if you have, uh, if any of you have questions for us uh, for next week, just uh, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we will happily dive into those. Um, let me just quickly run through where we stand as of Thursday evening in the indices and if you want to think of any other things you want to bring up before we bring this to a close. Um, so as, of, as I said, this is at the end of Thursday. I believe Friday was a down day. That's my guess. So, uh, just be aware of that. The B Top 50 index was uh, still up 72 basis points for the month of July. Up 606 for the year. SockGen CT index up 73 basis points. Up 5.48 for the year. The SockGen Trend uh, following index up uh, 92 basis points. Uh, up 8.42 for the year. Sakyan short term traders index uh, pretty much flat, slightly down, up uh, 13 basis points or 0.13% for the year. And the bridge alternatives index up half a percent for the month of July, up 5.91% for the year. Any closing thoughts, ideas, um, topics?
3: No, but looking forward to another interesting trend following week, whatever the outcome may be. But uh, happy trading. It'll be fun.
2: Yes, I appreciate all of the feedback and the positive feedback that we get and uh, just caution people to take some of it with a grain of salt and just uh, we're not, no one knows that no one's perfect in this field, but uh, there's a lot of fun on Twitter and on these podcasts uh, getting to know people and these questions are really fun to answer.
1: Absolutely. We're grateful for for all of that. Um, So um, if you want to give something back to us, um, completely free, of course, uh, then, uh, or it's up to you, of course, uh, then do share this podcast with a like-minded friend or two. That would be very helpful. Um, Otherwise, I just want to finish up by saying thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next edition of the Systematic Investor. And in the meantime... Have an awesome week.